Hey there, this is Brian Zond, and welcome to my sermon podcast. I'm glad that you're interested in the sermons that I preach here at Word of Life Church in St. Joseph, Missouri. And if you ever feel inclined to help us by supporting us financially, you can do that at our website, wolc.com. Thank you. Job, a blameless victim, the final installment. Job chapter 1, verse 1, There once was a man named Job who lived in the land of Uz. He was blameless, a man of complete integrity. He feared God and stayed away from evil. Job was blameless. That's what we're told. Can the reader remember this all the way through the book of Job? That's the challenge. We're told that Job was blameless, but then the Satan appears in the court of heaven and begins to accuse Job. And the Satan said, well, Job does not fear God for nothing. Job is only participating in self-interest. He worships you because it works out for him. And so a kind of wager, I suppose, as the story is told, was established and poor old Job, beleaguered Job, was just hit by three consecutive waves of tragedy until he'd lost everything. He'd lost it all. He'd lost his wealth, his health, his children. Now Job had three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And they came to comfort their friend. And they sat with him in silence for seven days in a solidarity of shared suffering. That is commendable. You know, when a person is hit by grief and tragedy, there, there is a work of grieving that has to be done. We, we can't just, you know, pretend that we didn't suffer that loss and try to ignore it. No, grief is a work that must be done, but it doesn't have to be done alone. There are those that can share our sorrows with us, and somehow it makes it more bearable. That's why the Apostle Paul tells us to weep with those who weep, and Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar did that. But after seven days of that, they felt like they needed to explain to Job why this had happened. And... Very quickly, their explanation turned to accusation. And then, when Job would not agree with their explanation and their accusation, everything began to, began to just fly out of control. And the, the accusations that uh, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar brought against Job became more and more aggressive. What had happened is they had become possessed with the Satan. And so Job and his three friends have a long series of debates 
where nothing is resolved. They continue to accuse Job, and Job won't agree. He defends himself. They accuse. Job defends himself. And they reach no resolution. And then finally, this young punk. You can tell I have some issues with Elihu. This young seminarian know-it-all shows up. And his attacks are the most bitter of all. In the end, he wants to crucify Job for blasphemy. He accuses him of blasphemy, which is a lie, and says that Job deserves the maximum penalty. Well, I'm glad to say that on this third Sunday of looking into the book of Job, we have at last had done with Job's blaming friends. We're not going to hear from them anymore, those miserable comforters. We're done with them. And we'll hear no more vile accusations from Elihu, the young know-it-all. Now God will speak. At last Job gets what he wants. An audience with the Almighty. Job 38 verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind. Who is this? that darkens counsel by words without knowledge. Gird up your loins like a man. I will question you, and you shall answer me. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, when all the morning stars sang together, and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So God, at last, has come to Job in his grief, and he comes in a tornado. It's very impressive. And God will now respond to Job's complaint. Remember, Job is what? Job is blameless. And God does not accuse Job. In particular, God absolutely does not accuse Job of any sin that has made him deserving of the tragedy that has befallen him, which is precisely what Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, and Elihu did. God does not do that. But God does question how much Job knows. So God begins with, a question that probably throws Job off balance a bit. Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? And then the first question that, and he says, okay, I, but before I, before I submit to your interrogation, Job, I have a few questions to ask you. Actually, he has a whole lot of questions. And his opening question is this, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? When all the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So, God does not accuse Job of sin that makes him deserving of the suffering he has endured, but God does question how much he knows. And he says, okay, so I'm going to start off with some questions for you. Where were you when the foundations of being and existence were laid? In other words, where were you when being and existence came to be and to exist? 
Are you the answer to the question, why is there something instead of nothing? Of course, the answer is no. God alone is responsible for being in existence, but God continues questioning Job like this for two entire chapters. Questions that all Job could say if he were to respond was, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know, I don't know. God's line of questioning has to do with alerting Job to the beauties and glories of creation that are all around him. After two chapters of this line of questioning, uh, there's a break in the action. Job 40, verse 1, Then the Lord said to Job, Do you still want to argue with the Almighty? You are God's critic, but do you have the answers? Now, at this point, Job is trying to throw in the towel. He wants no longer to interrogate God, uh, but God won't let Job throw in the towel just yet. He won't let Job bow out. Uh, he's not accusing Job of sin. That's not what's happening. He's not accusing Job of sin, but he is questioning Job on how much he knows, and he seems to want to drive home the point, Job, you know so very little. You know so very little. And so, after two chapters, God says, uh, do you, you want to keep going? And Job says, no. He says, well, we're going to keep going. And he unleashes another round of questions that also are centered in the glories and beauties of nature, but also seem to have a strong component of the nature of freedom. What is God doing? God is not simply asserting his sovereignty over Job. He's not saying, Job, I can do whatever I want. Shut up. He's not, that's not what's happening. God is not accusing Job. Don't forget, Job is blameless. But God is alerting Job to what he may have lost sight of, understandably, in the midst of his unjust suffering, and that is the gift of life. Sometimes life gets so painful that we can forget. Wait a minute. This is all a gift. I've been invited to this party. I've been invited to participate in the mystery of being because God wanted me to be. Job, in the midst of his pain, understandably, don't think I'm going to accuse Job. No way. But Job may have, understandably, temporarily lost sight of the profound, mysterious, deep truth that life is a gift. And it's precious. And it's to be celebrated. We're not done. Chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord, 
I know that you can do all things and that no purpose, that's a key word, that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Does God have a purpose? Is, is God up to something? Or is God just saying, oh, you know, I'll just let it be and we'll see what happens. There is freedom, but does God also in the midst of freedom have a purpose? Is there a telos? Is there an end? Is there an eschaton? Is God moving this towards something? Job says, I believe that this is not just chaos, but that God has a purpose and nothing in the end is going to get in God's way of God completing his purpose. Amen. And then Job quotes God, because God has already said this to Job. So it would be like this. Um, you said, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Uh, therefore I have uttered what I did not understand. Things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. And then he again hearkens to what God has said. God, you said, hear and I will speak. I will question you and you declare to me. Job responds, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore, I despise myself. Now, it's not hate myself. I, I shrink back. I think less of myself and repent in dust and ashes. Job is a blameless man who has endured unspeakable and unjust suffering. Job wants an audience with God. Most of us in times of great pain want that. I mean, how many of you can admit to in some way or another crying out to God in your agony, God, where are you? Few things are more human than that experience. Job is a bit exceptional in that he gets a very definite response. God comes across the plain in a whirlwind and says, Okay, Job, let's talk about it. But God does not accuse Job. Job just wants an audience and he gets it. It's granted. And as a result of his encounter with God, Job repents. He doesn't repent of a sin that made him deserving of his suffering because that doesn't exist. But he does repent in the sense that he changes his mind about something. He has a change of mind. That's what repent means. He's changed his mind about something. Now, at this point, we may not quite understand what has happened, but Job seems to understand and accept it. So let's see if we can unpack this and come to a deeper understanding of what Job has changed his mind about. Job was a blameless, innocent man who suffered a great, undeserved tragedy, but he doesn't blame God for what's happened to him. But Job also seems to decide that life really isn't worth the effort. He'll brave it out. He'll grit his teeth. You know, he'll hang on, but he's not convinced that it's worth it. In his bitter lamentation... And remember, God can handle your lamentations. In his bitter lamentation, Job says this, Let the day of my birth be erased. Let the day of my birth be erased. 
In his grief, Job seems to conclude that life is not worth it if there's so much pain. Again, I think many of you have felt that. At least from time to time. Anybody felt that? I don't know if life is worth it if it's just this much pain involved in it. So maybe non-existence would be better than existence. Maybe it would be better that I wouldn't I was never born, I was never conceived, I never came into being. I've, I've come into being, here I am, but I don't know that it's worth it. It might be better that I never existed. Let the day of my birth be erased. Well, that, that line, let the day of my birth be erased, is very much, very much like what Ivan Karamazov says in the Brothers Karamazov. Ivan says, uh, what Ivan does is he returns his ticket. That's his phrase. He says, I don't, I'm not saying I don't believe in God. I'm just saying I return my ticket. I want out. And then he makes a long, very compelling argument that there is no justification for existence if it involves the suffering of the innocent. And he presents three true, by the way, true stories. I mean, Dostoevsky, the author, finds these stories in the newspaper and works them into Ivan's argument about horrible suffering of innocent children. And he has his character, Ivan, say, if existence includes... This kind of suffering of the innocent, then I just return my ticket. I'm just going to say, God, I don't think it's worth it. And he wants out. He returns his ticket. Now, when God speaks to Job, you know, God comes to Job. Job has said, let the day of my birth be erased. And he's had these long arguments. And he's, he's insisted that he's blameless, and he is. As far as a sin that has to do with him deserving what he's experienced. But when God finally comes to Job in the whirlwind and begins to speak with Job, it's interesting that God doesn't address in any way, really, the particular evils that have befallen Job. God does not bring up the fact that Job has lost all of his wealth, all of his health, and all of his kids. He didn't bring it up. And God, interestingly, does not defend himself. God, God does not engage in a theodicy, that is, trying to reconcile the goodness of God and the reality of unjust suffering in the world. God doesn't, he just doesn't do that. But God does remind Job of the beauty and wonder of being over the course of four poetic chapters. And it seems to me that God is hinting at the notion that he who is the creator is not done yet. That you haven't seen all that is to come. The story has not yet been fully told. And the one who said, let there be, and brought all that is into existence, is the one who says, and I'm responsible, I understand, and it's an ongoing project, trust me. Now this may seem an unsatisfactory answer to the reader, perhaps to you. 
But apparently it was enough for Job. Job sees that God does have a plan and a good purpose for his creation and that he will bring it about in the end. Job is convinced that it will all come to an end. That indeed someday we will fall down and weep and understand it all. All things. Then Job answered the Lord, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. The Apostle Paul, much, 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 much later, after the revelation of Jesus in his life, death, burial, resurrection, will say, God causes all things to work together for good to those that love God and are called according to His purpose. Yes, all of creation groans. I mean, there's, we all have our moments of participating in the groaning of creation, longing to be liberated. But that isn't how Romans 8 ends. It ends with nothing can separate us from the love of God. As Frederick Buechner says it, God speaks to us and says, This is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. Job then says, I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear. But now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and I change my mind. I repent in dust and ashes. But what exactly does Job repent of? What does Job change his mind about? Job does not repent of a sin that caused him to deserve to be punishment because Job is blameless. We're not going to forget that at this point. Dang it, we're not going to get to the last chapter and go, oh, I guess Job was. No, we're not going to do that. Job does not repent of some sin that made him deserving of what he experienced. But Job does change his mind about whether or not life is a precious gift worth holding on and celebrating. Job changes his mind about returning his ticket, about his birth being erased. The great Latin American theologian, Gustavo Gutierrez, one of the most important theologians of the 20th and 21st centuries, translates verse 6 like this, and this is very important. Therefore, I retract and repent of dust and ashes. Not in, but of. Now, I'm not going to go into the analysis of Hebrew grammar that Gutierrez goes into that supports this translation, but I want to read how he comments on it. Gutierrez, a world-class scholar, Says Job 42.6 should have Job saying, I retract, I take it back, and I repent of dust and ashes. He gives all of the supporting Hebrew grammar for the legitimacy of that translation. But then he says this. Job is rejecting the attitude of lamentation that has been his until now. The speeches of God have shown him that this attitude is not justified. 
He does not retract or repent of what he has hitherto said. But he now sees that he cannot go on complaining. In his final statement, Job is expressing not a contrition, but a renunciation of his dejected outlook. You see, we've been hurled into radical freedom, the radical freedom of authentic being, because God wants us to participate with Him in the ongoing work of creation and in restoring all things to goodness. The nature of radical freedom means that anything can happen, even very bad things, but we need to keep in mind that God is not finished yet. This is the world. Beautiful and terrible things will happen. Don't be afraid. I am with you. So when you're suffering, don't return your ticket like Ivan Karamazov. Instead, behold the beauty and the wonder and the goodness that is shining through all things that's all around you. Fyodor Dostoevsky. I'm reading the Brothers Karamazov again right now for the fifth time. It's a difficult novel, but it's maybe the greatest theological work I've ever read. When it was originally published in 1880, it was published, as was common then, in serial form, in a magazine. So, you know, each week there'd be a new installment, and readers would follow along in this story. Much like a TV series today. And when the part where Ivan is trying to unsettle the faith of his younger brother, who is a Christian, a believer, he's trying to unsettle his faith, and he's explaining why he returns his ticket. And it's because if existence supports the suffering of the innocent, then none of it can be justified. And we should all just tell God, here, you can have the ticket back, we don't want it. Dostoevsky, through his character Ivan, makes such a compelling argument against believing in the goodness of God and the, and the, and the, the whole Christian salvation story that Dostoevsky's Christian friends, and Dostoevsky is a Christian believer, were very troubled. They said, Fyodor, dang, that's a pretty good argument. He says, yeah, I know, it's the best argument. He said, I've read all of the arguments of all of the atheists and I came up with better ones and stronger ones. And they said, well, aren't you afraid that you're going to unsettle the faith of people? He said, I'm not done yet. The book's not over yet. I have other things to say. And it would be weeks later when he begins to reply through his character, it's a fictitious character, Elder Zosima. It's very interesting. It's very much like the book of Job. By the way, um, Dostoevsky had lost a child. As he described it, he was three months short of three years old. So he lost a child who was two years and nine months old. And it just devastated him. It just crushed him. 
It just almost destroyed his faith and everything. And he went off to spend some time in a monastery just to find some solace. And while there, he met with two different monks who helped him work through these things. And much of what they said gets combined in this one fictitious character, Eldermer, Elder Zosima. Zosima doesn't take on Ivan's arguments directly, but he offers a different way of looking at things. At one point, Zosima says this. He says this to Aloysia, who's troubled, the young brother of Ivan, who's troubled. Elder Zosima says, Love all of God's creation, both the whole of it and every grain of sand. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. Love animals, love plants, love each thing. If you love each thing, you will perceive the mystery of God in things. Once you have perceived it, you will, you will begin to tirelessly perceive more and more of it every day. And you will come at last to love the whole world with an entire and universal love. All right, let's finish the story. Job 42, 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So don't ever think, well, you know, Eliphaz and Bildad and Zophar, they have a point. No, they don't. All of their explanation that turns into accusation simply made God mad. And God says, no, you're wrong. You haven't, your theology is no good. That's what, that's what theology is. It's just talk about God. And he says, your theology is terrible. Job has good theology. You don't. In fact, he goes on and he says, I should punish you. I, should, I'm, I, I think I should punish you. And you, you can just see those guys quaking in their boots. But I've decided I won't if Job will pray for you. You know, and you can see him looking at Job. Please. <laughs> and Job prays for them and they are spared. Verse 12, the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning. And he had 14,000 sheep. He'd had 7,000, now he has 14,000. 6,000 camels. He'd had three, now he has 6,000 camels. 1,000 yoke of oxen and 1,000 donkeys. He'd had 500, now he's got double. He also had seven sons and three daughters. After this, Job lived 140 years and saw his children and his children's children four generations. And Job died old and full of days. So Job has been vindicated by God against the vicious accusations that have been brought against him. Job is vindicated. Job had been telling the truth all along. He was a blameless victim. We never lose sight of that. We, hold, we held on to it for three weeks all the way through. Job was blameless. And in the end, God says, yep, he was. And this theology of, that comes up with a way of blaming the victim is bad theology. 
And God says, it incites my anger. So Job is vindicated, and then Job is restored. Not just restored, but, you know, he gets his health back, but his possessions come back double. But not his children. He gets seven more sons and three more daughters, but they're not double. Now, we will hear that and we'll go, yeah, okay, all right, that's nice. But still, you know, his ten kids are gone. Well, I think the reason that they're not doubled in the story is it's the best the author can do to hint at resurrection. It's the way that the the author has of hinting that somehow, I don't know how, but somehow God is going to bring it all back and set everything right. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. The sea is where all that trouble came from. It's no more. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, See, the home of God is among mortals. He will dwell with them. They will be His peoples. And God Himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Mourning and crying and pain will be no more. For the first things have passed away. And the one who is seated on the throne said, See, I am making all things new. When you are grieving and in great pain, go ahead, please, pour out your lamentation to God. He can bear it. But hold on to your ticket. Remember that life is a precious gift. Affirm the goodness of creation. Love every leaf and every grain of sand and trust God. Trust God that in the end, God is able to make all things work together for good, that God will wipe away every tear, and that God will make all things new. So we've heard the story of Job, a blameless victim, but he's also a man who at the end of the story is fully restored. I believe in Jesus, and I believe in the restoration of all things. I believe what the Apostle Peter said in Acts 3.21, that there will be a time of the restoration of all things. I believe what the voice says from the one who sits upon the throne, Behold, I make all things new. Amen. Stand with me. Let's confess our Christian faith and then come together to the table of the Lord. I believe...